Hello, everybody. Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 18th episode of the RIT Podcast. Let's get to the election headlines on Tuesday. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau swore in his new cabinet. I'm not going to go over the names, as I'm sure you've already heard uh, all of the details and analysis of what it all means. But from an electoral point of view, there are a few notable names on the list. Pascal Saint-Ange was named the Minister of Sport and Minister Responsible for the Economic Development Agency of Canada for the regions of Quebec. She won the riding of Brome, Mississauga by margin of 197 votes over the Bloc Québécois, making her win the fourth closest in the election. Randy Boissonneau won the riding of Edmonton Centre by just 1.3 points over the Conservatives, one of the Liberals' pickups in this election. He was named Minister of Tourism and Associate Minister of Finance. That was the only newly gained seat that got a cabinet post. We'll see if these postings will help make these seats a little safer for the Liberals, but three cabinet ministers did go down to defeat in the last election, so cabinet ministers can still be vulnerable even if their seats are supposed to be safe. Bernadette Jordan, for example, lost her seat of South Shore St. Margaret's in Nova Scotia by about four points after winning it in 2019 by 14 points. Trudeau was also asked if he was planning on leading the Liberals into the next election. On leading the Liberal Party into the next election? Yes. Next question, Mike. <laughs> of course, any other answer would have stepped on his cabinet announcement, and all we'd be talking about is uh, when would he be stepping down. So I guess we'll have to wait and see if he really meant it. As they say, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. On Monday, Nunavut held its territorial election. Elections in Nunavut are nonpartisan, so every MLA elected sits as an independent. In the 22 ridings, there were five acclamations, including Premier Joe Savikatak. Six incumbents were re-elected, and 11 new MLAs won seats. The MLAs will vote by secret ballot to choose the Speaker, Premier, and Cabinet, whose portfolios will be decided by whoever becomes the next Premier. Turnout was pretty low at about 50%, down from 63% in 2017. The results of the referendum and Senate elections held last week in Alberta were published on Tuesday. On the non-binding question on whether equalization should be removed from the Constitution, 62% of voters said yes. On the Daylight Saving Times question, 50.2% said they were opposed to moving to permanent daylight time, so that will not go ahead. The three candidates endorsed by the Conservative Party won the senatorial elections. Pam Davidson won the most votes with 18% of valid ballots cast, followed by Erica Barutz at 17% and Michaelo Martiniuk at 11%. The Prime Minister is under no obligation to appoint these senators to any Senate vacancies in Alberta, and about 19% of voters either spoiled or left their ballot blank. On Saturday, the next leader of the Manitoba Progressive Conservatives and Premier of the province will be named. The two contestants are Heather Stevenson and Shelley Glover. Glover is a former Manitoba MP and cabinet minister in Stephen Harper's government, while Stevenson is the MLA for Tuxedo and was recently the Minister of Health. She has held a few portfolios in Brian Pallister's provincial government. She also has the backing of nearly all the PC caucus, but it will be the members who decide who becomes the next premier, and about 24,000 of them are eligible to vote in the leadership contest. The Green Party of Nova Scotia elected Anthony Edmonds as its new leader, with Joanne Roberts as deputy leader. Edmonds is an aerospace engineer, while Roberts was the interim leader of the Green Party of Canada after Elizabeth May stepped down in 2019. 93% of voting members supported the team of Edmonds and Roberts, who were the only candidates on the ballot, apart from a none-of-the-above option. The Nova Scotia Greens took 2.1% of the vote in this summer's provincial election, running candidates in 43 of Nova Scotia's 55 ridings. 
Interim leader Jessica Alexander led the party in that campaign. Edmonds was one of only two candidates to get more than 6% of the vote in his riding. Let's look at the polls of the week. Now, with the cabinet being sworn in this week, a few pollsters put out some numbers uh, to really kind of set the stage of where things are as we get going on this new parliament. The uh, polls that came out over the last few days, there were three of them with some voting intentions numbers, so I wanted to look at them. There was Nanos Research, Abacus Data, and Main Street Research. They generally show numbers that uh, I think would have looked pretty familiar at the end of the campaign. So Nanos had the Conservatives at 31%, the Liberals at 30%, and the NDP at 23%, while Abacus had the Liberals at 33%, the Conservatives at 30%, the NDP at 19%, and Main Street had the Liberals at 34%, the Conservatives at 33%, and the NDP at 15%. Um, So, you know, what we're looking at here is 30-33% to for the Conservatives, down from where they were in the election, but every pollster did underestimate conservative support in the last election. So uh, you look at these numbers and you see maybe not much of a shift at all for the conservatives, maybe down a little bit. Uh, The liberals were between 30 and 34 in these polls. The, The polls did underestimate the liberals a little bit, but again, pretty much exactly where things were. This isn't a post election honeymoon as we sometimes seen in the past. But we didn't see in 2019. After the 2019 election, the numbers more or less stayed exactly where they were. So, you know, in a lot of ways, the 21 campaign was a copy and paste of 2019. And in terms of what's happening post-election, it might be the same thing. For the NDP, Nanos having them at 23%, Main Street at 15 uh, We've sometimes seen a lot of variation in NDP support, depending on the method of of the poll, and the IVR polls have tended to have lower numbers for the New Democrats. And Nanos had one of the higher numbers for the NDP at the uh, end of the federal campaign, so uh, again, more or less status quo. Uh, The block in these polls was matching where they were in the last election, the Greens at 3%, also matching where they were. Uh, The People's Party was scoring 6% in Abacus, 5% in Nanos, and for some reason that I don't know... Main Street did not include the People's Party in their poll, just having an other option, and the other option had 9%. But what we're looking at here is pretty much the exact same thing as we saw just uh, a little bit over a month ago. But there were a few things in the Abacus poll that I wanted to focus in on. One of them was on the questions of vaccinations and MPs. So the Board of Internal Economy, which is a small committee in the House of Commons that can decide more or less how things are run in the House, um, it voted to require anybody attending Parliament, uh, be it MPs, senators, journalists, whatever, have to have proof of vaccination. Uh, the Conservatives at first were um, very much upset about this. They said that this was the other members who ended up uh, supporting this measure, not the Conservatives. But Aaron O'Toole has gone back and forth and back again, and it seems that where they've currently landed is that the Conservatives will require that anybody who goes to the House uh, be vaccinated. But it does seem like there might be some wiggle room that if an MP is not vaccinated, they might be able to call in virtually. I guess we'll have to see how that's all going to be playing out. But in terms of the poll that Abacus asked, 77% of Canadians said MPs should be vaccinated if they are going to be physically in the House of Commons. Only 23% said MPs should be able to attend sessions in the House of Commons, even if not vaccinated. This opinion was widespread across the political spectrum. 
84% of liberal voters agreed you should be vaccinated. Same thing for the NDP. It was 88% for the bloc. Even 69% of conservative voters agreed you should be vaccinated if you're going to the House of Commons. The only party supporters who didn't agree was, of course, the People's Parties. Uh, 76% of that party supporters said that MPs should be able to attend sessions in the House of Commons, even if not vaccinated. Of course, it should be noted that the People's Party of these parties is the only one without any MPs that will be attending sessions in the House of Commons or virtually. Um, So that is an interesting uh, result there and maybe explains why Aaron O'Toole decided that, you know, fighting this much more than he was maybe uh, pushed to by some members of his caucus was not going to be worth it. The regional breakdown in the abacus poll I wanted to look at as well, because the one that I wanted to highlight was the result in Alberta. 53% for the Conservatives, 16% for the People's Party, way more than anywhere else in the country. The next best result was 7% in Quebec. Um, So that'll be something that'll be worth watching because we didn't really see, especially the online polls, ever give the PPC this much support in uh, some regions of the country. So um, we'll have to watch that. In terms of the leader impressions, uh, the positive versus negative views that Abacus tracks, Trudeau's numbers have been getting a little bit worse. They're now at 38% positive, 44% negative. 44% negative is the highest it's been since uh, since at least as far back as this tracking goes on this particular chart, which is at the end of 2020. And the 38% for his positive ratings is one of his lower results. So he is not getting a bump out of the election. But we did see that Aaron O'Toole's numbers have gone down quite a bit since the election. At the end of the campaign, he had improved his positive impression scores to 31%. They were at about 20% before the election called. So he did manage to improve his image over the course of the campaign. But now we're seeing that in this abacus poll, his positive numbers have dropped down 6 points to 25%, which is more or less where they were at about the first week of the campaign. So he has lost some esteem among voters, maybe because of his loss or what happened afterwards. But his negative impression score is now 44%, which is the highest it's been since he's been leader. Uh, For Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, his numbers continue to be the best, 44% positive, 22% negative. Uh, That 22% negative is actually a big drop. Uh, It got up to 26% by the end of the campaign, but uh, his 44% positive rating is more or less even where it's been for quite some time. Another poll I wanted to talk about was the Angus Reid Institute poll, part of their quarterly roundup where everything is across the country. And because of this roundup, we have some voting intentions numbers for every province except PEI. Uh, I know I've gotten some comments about it in the past. Angus Reid Institute doesn't release specific numbers for the Prince Edward Island in terms of premier approval ratings or voting intentions, um, in part because it's a small province, so their sample in that province that panel that they have there um, might be too small to actually get some good results out of it that you can go back to every couple months. You don't want to be polling the exact same people every single time. That's not how that is uh, supposed to be done. But let's go uh, across the country here because there were some interesting results. In British Columbia, the New Democrats are in a good spot. They continue to lead in the polls by wide margin. Uh, They have 45% support in the Angus Reid poll. They're ahead by nearly 20 points over the BC Liberal Party, and the Greens were in third with 14%. One thing to note here is that the Conservatives got 11%. The BC Conservatives is always, I think, a big problem in polling. Uh, They're not a party that is very competitive or very 
well-established. They only run candidates in a couple uh, ridings. They don't take a big chunk of the vote. But in polls, they do well because people think of the conservatives and they think, oh, the conservative party, the party that I vote federally. And so 11% for the BC conservatives is probably 10 points too high. Now, if that all goes to the BC liberals, it's a closer race. But um, that is still a good number for the NDP to be at 45%. You can win an election with 45%. And on some of the issues, you have 66% of British Columbians saying that John Horgan's government has done a good job on the pandemic, 55% on public transit, 49% on transportation infrastructure and healthcare. You know, these are issues that are pretty important, and they're doing really well on them. Alberta, though, it's not going well for Jason Kenney. The New Democrats now lead in Alberta with 43%. I've talked a little bit about how things are going for the UCP uh, on past podcasts, they only had 31% support in this poll. So they're trailing the NDP by 12 points. And the Wild Rose Independence Party was at 15%. Um, so they're taking a big chunk of what would normally be the UCP vote. And in terms of what people think they're doing a good job on, 20% think the Alberta government is doing a good job on the pandemic. That is not a good score. The only thing that they got over 40% on was infrastructure, transportation infrastructure. You're not going to win an election on roads and highways alone. In neighboring Saskatchewan, the Saskatchewan party is still doing quite well, 52%, 35% for the New Democrats, 9% for others, which could be uh, the Buffalo party, which uh, did not too bad in some ridings in the 2020 provincial election, but uh, Scott Moe seems to be in a pretty good spot. But not getting high marks on the pandemic. 32% in this poll said he's doing a good job on that. But a majority said he's doing a good job on energy and the economy. And again, that roads and highways. People are happy with the road situation in Western Canada. Uh, in Manitoba, the New Democrats are at 43%. So Wab Canoe's party is leading there. The PCs are at 38%. And the Manitoba Liberals at 11%. Nothing really too shocking in these numbers. We've been seeing this kind of pattern for some time. Now to Ontario. Ontario is the next province to go to the polls. They have an election in June. The Ontario Progressive Conservatives led in this poll with 34% support, followed pretty closely by the NDP at 32% and the Ontario Liberals at 25%. We've been seeing some polls in Ontario suggesting that that PC support has dropped to the mid-30s. The question is, who is second? Is it the NDP? Is it the Liberals? We've seen some different numbers in different polls. What could be problematic for the Ontario PCs is that the only issues where they're getting at least 35% in terms of doing a good job is the pandemic, 45 Again, these roads and highways, 42%, and public transit, 35%. You know, for the PCs, they need to be at least at 35% if they want to have a hope of winning the most seats, and if they want to win a majority government, need to be a little bit higher than that. So they would need some of these numbers to come up. In Quebec, uh, Francois Legault's government getting very high marks on the pandemic, 71% think he's doing a good job on that. 56% on the economy, 54% on childcare, 52% on public transit, 50% on jobs and unemployment. Um, so high marks for the performance of the CAQ government. But in terms of the voting intentions, 37%, not much higher than where they were in the last election. 21% for the Liberals, 15% for Quebec Solidaire, 11% for the Quebec Conservatives, and 10% for the Parti Québécois. Interesting numbers to see the Conservatives that high. The party there does seem to have been doing a little bit better in the polls. There was a Leger survey that had them at around 8% uh, pretty recently. Uh, is the CAQ actually at 
we'll see. We've seen lots of numbers that have had them closer to 50. Uh, but the Angus Reid uh, surveys that we've seen, these quarterly numbers that they, they do for Quebec, sometimes have the CEQ a bit lower than everybody else. Uh, but even so, a 16-point lead over the Liberals, who have their vote concentrated in just a you know, a few ridings in the West Island of Montreal, uh, CAQ government can win a pretty big majority government, even if they're down uh, from some of those high 40 polls that we've seen. Uh, out east, now the samples are getting a lot smaller. In New Brunswick, it is only 265 uh, decided voters. Tie between the PCs and the Liberals at 31% apiece. The NDP was at 13% which is quite high, 12% for the Greens and 12% for the People's Alliance. So, um, you know, Blaine Higgs' government maybe not getting high marks on a lot of different issues. The only ones where they did better than 40% was on the pandemic, 48%, and the deficit government spending at 40%. New Brunswick doesn't have an election until 2024, and the Liberals don't even have a permanent leader, so these numbers might be a little bit of a mirage. In Nova Scotia... The PCs are now leading with 39%. They just won an election in August. The New Democrats are in second with 32%, which might be a bit of an election hangover for the Liberals because they're down to 21%. Um, Again, small sample here with just 264 decided voters. And then finally, in Newfoundland and Labrador, a tie right now between the PCs and the Liberals at 39% apiece, 17% for the NDP. Um, just 200 people uh, sampled there, but very high marks for Newfoundland and Labrador's government on coronavirus and the pandemic. 86% of respondents said they're doing a good job. All right, questions and answers. I got a few about the cabinet, um, so I will give a few thoughts. Christopher asked, who is someone you thought would get into cabinet who didn't, and who is someone you thought wouldn't get into cabinet but did? So my surprise omission is someone who had been in cabinet. So it's Bardish Chagger, who uh, was the former leader of the government in the House, and her last portfolio was the Minister of Diversity, Inclusion, and Youth. She was given a lot of tough portfolios uh, for the government, sometimes having to defend the government and not always, perhaps, uh, as strongly as the Liberals would have hoped. But the fact that she's not in cabinet means that all of Ontario, south and west of the Toronto-Hamilton area, does not have a seat at the cabinet table. That is a bit of an omission to have, you know, Kitchener, London, Windsor, that whole area without a cabinet minister. That is a a little bit of a surprise there because those Kitchener-London seats are pretty important for the Liberals. They need to win seats beyond just the GTA if they're going to form a majority government. So that was a little bit of a surprise omission. A surprise addition has nothing to do with the quality of the cabinet minister, but Goody Hutchings uh, was named the Minister of Rural Economic Development. I find this a surprise addition because it means that Newfoundland and Labrador now has two cabinet ministers. And it means they have more cabinet ministers in bigger provinces like Alberta, Manitoba, and Nova Scotia. Um, Maybe the fact that they lost that seat in central Newfoundland made the Liberals a little nervous, decided they needed to have another minister from Newfoundland and Labrador rather than one from Nova Scotia, where they also lost seats. But uh, that is a little bit of a surprise. Kaylin also asked on Twitter, who do you think has the potential to be the most impactful new cabinet minister? I have to say it's probably Anita Anand, who is uh, now the Minister of National Defense, simply because this was a portfolio in terms of the um, sexual harassment and other allegations there um, that Harjit Sajjan didn't seem to be handling very well. And it's a big task. It's someone who is from outside of the armed forces 
clearly some big changes are going to be needed there. And so she might have the potential to have the biggest impact in terms of a lasting, lasting impact, but that'll be something to watch. I got a few questions from subscribers who sent them by email. So that's always a good way to get the question um, onto the podcast. Peter Ryan, he asked, what do you think of the polling for the Montreal mayor's race? Prior to the autumn, Kader, Denis Kader, had an advance of about 20 points, but based on the small number of polls that have come out since the federal vote, it seems that the race is effectively tied. Who do you think will win in the end, and why has it gotten to be such a horse race? Now, I'm not going to give a prediction of who's going to win, because it's, it is very, very, very close. Now, in 2017, uh, Valérie Plante, who is the person who won, uh, she uh, took 51% of the vote, and Denis Kader, who was the outgoing mayor, he's a former liberal MP, uh, cabinet minister, had 46%. So it was a very close result just in 2017. What's interesting about Montreal, it's out, uh, and in Quebec in general, there are political parties at the municipal level. Valérie Plante, she leads Projet Montréal, uh, Denis Kader leads Ensemble Montréal, and there's someone else that is really having an impact on this race is Balarama Holness. He leads uh, Mouvement Montréal. Why has it gotten to be such a close race? Well, I think you need to look at that that uh, candidature of uh, Holness because so Léger had a poll out just today on Thursday. It was a poll for the Journal de Montréal and the Montreal Gazette. And it gave 36% support for Plant, 36% for Kader. Um, so it is not only effectively tied, it is literally tied between the two. Why has it shifted? Well, I think that Kader is, you know, he is a bit of a divisive figure, I suppose. Um, and so the fact that he was leading in some, you know, early polls might have been more of a more of a maybe referendum on Plant, who has had some issues in terms of her popularity. But I think that uh, Balarama Holness, he is having a, an effect because he's getting 12%, and he has higher support among you know, the Anglophone, Allophone community in Montreal, and this is a group that Denis Kader would generally do pretty well in. Because if you look at a map of where the candidates have good support, Plante is pretty good in the downtown core, uh, in the Francophone uh, sections as well, because she is more of a you know, a progressive left-wing kind of mayor. She comes from, her background is more towards like the NDP, for example. Whereas Denis Kader, he has much more support among the West Island, among Anglophones in Northern Montreal, which is more diverse. If you look at the poll that Léger did, among Francophones, Plant has a lead of 12 points, 48 to 36, with only five supporting wholeness who wants to make Montreal or wants to have a vote on having, being, making Montreal a bilingual city. But among Anglophones, Kader had 38%, Plant has 28%, and Holness has 14%. So some of that vote could have gone to Kader and would make him a bit more competitive. Uh, so it, it's going to be a really interesting one to watch. Municipal polling is always, to me, very fraught. So the fact that the polls are, are tied now, you know, don't be surprised if the results are very different. We'll have to see what happens. But um, certainly the race in Montreal is is one to watch, and uh, we'll see if, uh, uh, in this rematch, if Kader will be able to come back or if Valérie Plante will be able to hold on. The vote is taking place on November 7th. Adam Birkin, he also asked uh, via email, Are liberal minority governments more stable than conservative ones? It seems like a conservative minority will have a hard time getting anything done because the liberals are generally the opposition and the NDP is ideologically very different, whereas the liberals can more easily partner with the NDP. So just the general question of do minority governments work better when the liberals are the government because they have more dance partners than the conservatives. If you look at the history, it's it's a little bit hard to say. So let's go through the recent, or at least the uh, 
minority governments over the last 60 years. Uh, there was one in f- 1957 when John Diefenbaker defeated Louis Saint-Laurent, and that minority government only lasted less than a year. There was another election in 1958, but this was in part because the PCs under Diefenbaker, they knew that they were on track for a huge majority, which they were, and they won that in 1958. Uh, but in 1962, Diefenbaker was unpopular again, and he was reduced to a minority government, and that one only lasted again for a little bit about a year. It was There was another election in 1963. You know, the Diefenbaker minorities didn't last very long. And when Joe Clark came in in 1979, again, didn't last very long, only a few months. He was defeated in 1980. Uh, you know, the joke is that he couldn't count uh, the amount of, of seats in the House of Commons because he was counting on social credit. The Stephen Harper minorities, 2006 to 2008, lasted about two and a half years. 2008 to 2011 lasted again about two and a half years. Um, they, they were relatively stable minority governments because the liberals were pretty weak. They didn't want to defeat the government. The NDP and the bloc, they had a bit more of a luxury of, of, of opposing the conservatives because they knew the liberals were going to fold. Um, but in those cases, those governments were pretty stable. I think it depends on the context. If it's an outgoing government on the opposition benches, they might be much less willing to try to get back into power. Uh, so the stability might be in terms of the strength of the parties rather than which of the parties are there. Because for the Liberals, yes, there are minorities under Pearson between 63 and 68. They had support from the NDP, a bit more stable, even if they, again, only lasted two years, two and a half years. Uh, Trudeau in 1972, 1974, again, support from the NDP, but the Liberals decided to go to the polls in 1974, or at least tried to engineer defeat when they thought that they could win. But then the Paul Martin minority in 2004, that was one that was very, very unstable uh, because of the math in the House the fact that the Liberals had been in power then for over a decade. But then the Trudeau minorities we've had for the last uh, two and a half years, you know, or two years, it, they seem like they could they could work. So I don't know if it is specifically about who is in the government. I think it has a lot more to do with the strength of the parties in the opposition. Brandon Tozo asked on Twitter, what would Queen's Park look like with this poll? And he was referring to the Angus Reid poll I talked about earlier, given how concentrated the NDP vote seems to be in a few cities and how the PC vote is rural. So in that poll, the Conservatives were at 34 and the NDP was at 32. I think with the PCs being in the mid-30s, it's harder for them to win a majority government. But the NDP needs to be much, much closer and they need to be much further ahead in order to win more seats. If you remember back in 2018, the Ontario PCs and the NDP for a while, at the last week or so of the campaign, were tied in the polls. But even so, the PCs were still on track to win a majority government uh, maybe three, 30 more seats in the NDP, even in a tied situation, because of the vote efficiency. And the NDP's vote is extremely inefficient, and the PC vote is much more efficient, particularly when their opponent is the NDP. So I think that for the NDP to be able to win more seats than the PCs, they probably need to be ahead by six, seven, eight points, uh, whereas the PCs probably still win a pretty big minority government, even if they're ahead by only two. But it does depend on how it breaks down regionally. And, uh, you know, some of the patterns that emerged in 2018 will change in 2022. We just don't know how. This week on the Every Election Project, we're heading out west and back in time 39 years ago this week to the Alberta provincial election held on November 2nd, 1982. 
By then, Alberta was already more than a decade into the progressive conservative dynasty that began in 1971, when the PCs under Peter Lougheed had defeated the social credit government that itself had been in office for 36 years. Throughout the 1970s, Lougheed had combined booming economic growth and expansion of the oil and gas industry with fights with the Pierre Trudeau liberal government in Ottawa to win huge majorities. He won 69 of 75 seats in 1975 and 74 of 79 seats in 1979. In years running up to the 1982 election, Lougheed fought back against the federal government's national energy program, which tried to centralize control over Canada's energy industry and oil prices, costing Alberta billions in revenues, and he also took part in the negotiations to repatriate Canada's constitution. But the economy was slowing in the early 1980s, and the NEP was despised in the province. It gave rise to the Western Canada concept, which was a party that advocated for separation. It scored a victory in a February by-election in the riding of Olds Didsbury, with Gordon Kessler winning the seat previously held by Social Credit. Lougheed launched the campaign taking aim at Kessler's party, warning Albertans against voting for a separatist party just to get back at Ottawa. But Lougheed didn't have much opposition. The only other party to run a full slate of candidates beyond the Western Canada concept were the New Democrats under Grant Notley, father of the current leader of the Alberta New Democrats, Rachel Notley. Grant Notley had won just a single seat, his own, in the 1979 election, but led the party again into its fourth election with him as leader. The Liberals, struggling under the baggage of Trudeau's NEP, didn't run a candidate in a majority of ridings. Neither did Social Credit, which was on its last legs as a party. The result was the biggest victory the Alberta PCs would ever win. Lougheed's party won 75 seats and 62% of the vote, up one seat and nearly five percentage points over its 1979 performance. The NDP formed the official opposition for the first time since the CCF days, though with just two seats. Notley is in northern Alberta and an Edmonton seat that was won by Ray Martin. The NDP captured just under 19% of the vote, while two former SoCreds running as independents were also elected. The Western Canada concept was unable to hold the Olds Didsbury seat it won in a by-election, but still captured 12% of the vote. This remains the best performance by any Western separatist party. It would be the last election for both Lougheed and Notley. In 1984, still only 45 years old, Notley died in a plane crash near Slave Lake. Bray Martin then took over as leader, and the party finally broke through, winning 16 seats in both the 1986 and 1989 elections. But Lougheed had bowed out by then. After the 1982 election, the Alberta Premier would stay on for three more years until resigning in 1985 and being replaced by Don Getty. With more than 14 years in the job, Lougheed remains second on the list of longest-serving Alberta Premiers after Ernest Manning. And that'll be it for the podcast this week. I'm going to be trying something new on the writ on this coming Wednesday, so keep an eye on your inboxes and please let me know what you think. Till then, have a great weekend and thanks for listening. <laughs>